think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 48 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 49th episode. Uh, we are here two, two, three weeks before Etienne's departure. That's correct. For Morocco for a month, so we will see if we can get episode 49, the 50th episode in before that time. Uh, we're, uh, we're a little late on this one because we were too busy setting up uh, a sort of the foundation of our uh, Royal Wedding podcast. Yes. Look, look forward to that a so, little later. Well, actually, that's that's today's. <laughs> so we're going to be talking the dress. No. Yeah, there we're going to be talking the, the efficient. We're going to be talking carriages i don't know do they have those they those? did they carried okay. they yeah. carriaged out of the castle um as one does for ben mulrooney was like front row was he really yeah he Why? was he was right up there he was in the background of every shot he got prime spots was there a particular reason for that uh evidently he's friends with the family or friends with the bride i imagine okay i was gonna say which family because that is an important <laughs> detail here because <laughs> um, obviously his father had dealings with with one of them um yes. the house of windsor but uh, i don't know about the house of Mar- I think I think it was on the other side. I see. Uh, yes, the dealings with House of Markle, I imagine, just come I from see. the Toronto roots, the Toronto social circles. Yeah, and the Toronto sort of like media slash yeah, yeah entertainment business industry. Okay, well, we're already off to a great start here. What, with the what, Royal what did you podcast. make of her dress? Uh, I actually, uh, my partner tried to show me this morning, and I just closed my eyes and said i had republican vision and couldn't look at the royal wedding so uh that's a fair response yeah i i just the, the more you stay out of it the less they're going to try and show you with uh with the royal wedding so i thought that was a good call on my part all right i'll, I'll accept that approach yeah. i don't know you'd have to ask the intern he he did see so yes he, he probably has more thoughts he would be a monarchist so yeah because libertarians for some reason tend to be actually uh it's a bizarre kind of thing um there, there's a whole like weird genealogy of ideas with libertarian monarchism and how it's like very deeply rooted in uh racism but uh more, more on that later uh anyway you wanted to talk about uh one of the funniest stories of the last couple of weeks and i will just let you lead off on that Will you? Oh, that's very sweet of you. Um, so I'm, I'm drawing heavily on an article titled No Subterfuge by Solomon Israel, who is, of course, um, a journalist with The Leaf News, which is a spinoff of the Winnipeg Free Press. It's their cannabis reporting publication. I did not know they had that. Um, yeah, there's a few. Um, it's, it's worth noting. There's a few different outlets these days that are sort of working towards cannabis-specific news. There was Lyft, um, which was a cannabis-specific outlet, but they've really gone downhill as they lost one of their reporters. Um, the Who the BC West Coast? Uh, what is it? The Georgia Strait? Yeah. Um, the Strait has uh, cannabis journalism as well. They're one of the only other ones. And then, in fact, the Financial Post has a section on their website dedicated to cannabis I would imagine news. the tenor of all of these is, are very different. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think you could so. say the editorial direction of between... the Financial Post and the Georgia Strait is... Uh... Yes, remarkably different. All, all of them produce quality content. Uh, on the industry, though. Um, so, building on Solomon Israel's piece, his piece is the story of Malcolm Armstrong, the plucky, I, I don't even think he's young, I was going to say plucky young staffer, but the... Plucky, older, middle-aged kind of staffer. <laughs> yes. You can be plucky well into middle age. Don't who, let anybody tell you otherwise. Who effectively went door-to-door to senators to sell that he wanted to be a... 
I don't know, a legislative aide on the cannabis issue with seeming no background in legislation to my knowledge and no formal training in cannabis. He was sort of neither poli-sci nor cannabis. What is, but... what is formal training in cannabis? Like you get taken up to like a mountaintop monastery where they... Like... <laughs> <laughs> Funny you say that. Uh, I mean, formal training in cannabis exists in a variety of forms, either by working in the space or now like every school you can think of is now having some sort of cannabis training, be it from the horticultural or the legal side. Take take your pick. I see. Uh, but that's somewhat beside the point. So it just, I'll call him a random dude. Basically went door-to-door to senators trying to sell that he wanted to be, he was reasonably well-informed on the issue and he wanted to be their legal aid. Uh, Tony Dean, who was one of the ISG senators spearheading the legislation, turned him down. Um, but the conservative opposition critic, Claude Catignan, took him up on the well, offer. Well, he's not just the... Opposition critic, I believe he's their sort of caucus chair. Yeah, but I'm yeah. not. I'm not sure that is really a significant. I think it is. It's like you know, a random backbench senator versus the guy who is the chair of the caucus picking him is like a substantial distinction. I don't know. I, sure. I think that especially on a landmark piece of the the distinction is noted for the record. Okay, but he is the opposition's. I, I just think it's more interesting that he is the lead critic on the uh, on the file. Yes. Um. So he was hired as a contractor in March of this year to quote provide information on any specific questions that Catignan needed answered. And so Armstrong goes on to write a report about how to delay C forty five. Without killing the bill. So you've been saying this. It's a memo. It's a memo. I. It's. I, think I know like he calls it a report. Five pages. It's like five pages. Talks. That's a long memo. Um. There's so much wrong. One with of the them. Memo. One of them is a cover page, and two of them are citations pages. It's a memo. Okay. So interesting things about the the memo, the report, whatever we're calling it. One, he ripped the template off of official senate reports typically the documents that staffers make are sort of just microsoft word microsoft word (laughs) use the the report template in there yes um maybe you have the senator's letterhead or something i think a good report that is going to be seen by a lot of people you're going to have some some headings you're going to have some subheadings (laughs) if you're really feeling fancy you make that sucker in garamond which is the king of fonts that's uh that's actually false no garamond is the best no you're wrong. Um, yeah, so, I mean, he, he knocked off the style of Senate reports. He wrote it up to make it look like a professional Senate report. He put his title being Dr. Armstrong, or Dr. Malcolm Armstrong, on the report cover. He is a doctor of? Theology. From? A school in India that is uh, a pontifical Athenium, which is a recognized <laughs> sort of level of school within the sort of, like, Catholic university system. Uh, if you're if you're pontifically recognized, right? That that's like that's not nothing. Like the University of Toronto used to have a very good medieval studies center called the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies, which sadly no longer exists. But yeah, pon- being a pontifical institute or a pontifical uh, athenium is, is is not nothing. So <laughs> just saying, that's your take on it. Yes. I, I looked up the Pontifical Institute's website. Yes, athenium um, in this case. Athenium. I, I don't know what the proper terminology here is, um, and was delighted to see that is a school of about thirty-five folks by the looks of the yes. images on the website. Um, and correspondence courses include secrets of the church or mysteries of the church. Um, so suffice it to say, I'm not sure. You realize that's not like Dan Brown classes, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's like a theological term. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm just saying, I'm considering taking the course. Okay. Um, yeah, so all, all of this is to say, he, he wrote up the report, um, looks highly questionable, and then he started soliciting senators, sort of not disclosing who he was, to read the report as if he were some sort of expert and not an opposition staffer. Uh, he was going door to door, basically handing out the report, uh, all before Claude Carignan was aware of the report's existence, before you could have it translated to French, um, things like this. So unfortunately, Dr. Malcolm Armstrong was dismissed from Carignan's office for trying to basically sell a legislative strategy through the back door around the senator he was working for. Which is a bit weird super weird if you're acting in the capacity of a staffer speaking to senators particularly senators of the opposition you better hope that you are on the right side of your senator or your member of parliament's sort of opinion and or strategy yes um lest you appear to be speaking for them when you are in fact not representing their views yes that that's one of sort of the most critical things for staffers to get early on in their career and there's lots of stories about this of people sort of making this mistake. Yeah, you got to when they say things offhand of their own opinion, and it's presented as the opinion of the minister or the prime minister or take your pick. Right there, uh, I had a really good story, but now it's I just instantly forgot it as soon as it came to mind. So another time. All about right, this. You'll, you'll have about forty-five more minutes to. Yes. Uh, oh, you know, I, I do remember now. It's actually from. Um, uh, Eddie's book. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, where, where he's at dinner with a senator. Yes. Uh, and he sort of offhandedly says, like, it would be fine if we recognized the Armenian genocide. And then, it, like, days later, it was like, Canada considering recognizing Armenia. He's like, oh, shit, I just said this at dinner. <laughs> yeah, but when you're a staffer with PMO, you don't have the luxury of expressing yourself no. unclearly. Indeed. Be precise in your speech, you could uh, say. So let's talk about the report recent, or the, the content of the report is actually really funny because just... <clears throat> no, no. <laughs> because of how much it gets wrong. Um, so the report opens, reasons to postpone the vote on Bill C-45. And there, it's it's a bunch of quotes from witnesses. Yes, there are concerns about how fast uh, the report is going through. I won't take too much issue with it. Um, the next section that I do take more issue is, with is what senators are unknowingly agreeing to. And then in the list includes edibles and cannabis-infused beverages. Cannabis concentrates, including hashish, wax, shatter, and vaping solutions. This is like... I feel really uncool because I don't know what any of those things are. A well... (laughs) Ask me about it, let me tell you. This is a well-reported aspect of the bill that the liberals and the NDP work to amend the legislation. We, in fact, discussed this mere two weeks ago. Well, like a month ago now, actually. Yeah. (laughs) With our our good friend Peter. You can listen to that episode. It's uh, episode 46, I believe. It's a good one. Yeah. Um... We discussed that the bill includes a clause allowing for concentrates and edibles to come into or to be regulated within a year of the coming into force of the legislation. So this is not some sort of greasy mystery. It, it well reported was a significant amendment and something that every single senator on this file should know. Um, there's a bunch of other questions, but the the broad the broad thesis of the report is about forming a special Senate committee. And as it goes, uh, Dr. Armstrong basically sat down with a couple Senate, uh, Senate clerks and, oh, dis- God. and discussed possible options with them. Um, and this is the solution that he came to, was basically another committee to further study the bill and, and to push the legislation off for a while. This is a dumb idea for many, many reasons, but perhaps the dumbest reason 
or the most significant reason in my mind is because senators don't need a special committee to delay, to, to delay legislation if they see fit. They can continue study at committee. They can not bring it to third reading vote. They, Which is the easiest way, really. They have a lot of different options. And yeah. so if that was their intent, which it is not the intent of senators and is not the intent of government, then they could certainly do this in a plethora of ways. And you don't need to be handing a report door to door to try and convince people that there is some, you know, miracle solution, which seemingly is the way this was pitched. Mm-hmm. So all that is to say, a pretty hilarious example of staffing going remarkably poorly and why you should not hire the vacuum salesman to be your political staffer indeed or the theology salesman in this case i guess I don't, yeah at any rate you basically <laughs> want people who actually know how the political system works and uh i mean i i can see the case for getting subject matter experts but like you know pick them well pick them well <laughs> pick them well and certainly do not pick a non-subject matter expert and someone with no political experience yeah, that's not a good combination. And someone who starts selling your report door to door before uh, you even see it. Before you even see it. Yeah, that's bad. Because the translators were taking too long, which they can. I sympathize with that. Absolutely brutal, but a great uh, a great story on the record now about uh, miscarriages in political staffing. I wonder if that's going to get discussed in NPM uh, classes at Carlton. It should. It, I, I hope it does. It should. It should go down yes. as a, a great example of. They should have you come teach that class. <laughs> What not to do? <laughs> um, yeah, so also as, as many of, of you who live in Ontario and, and some of you who don't are probably aware, there's there's an election going on in Ontario right now. Uh, this was sort of set up to be very turbulent from the start. We had this sort of uh, what Patrick Brown is now rebranding as his political assassination in January. Um, he is now releasing a book about that in November, so watch out on the shelves for that. Five hundred, well, five hundred copies. It's going to be very limited. Uh, yes, very the limited same guy release. who is going to run uh, Maxim Bernier's book, so it'll be a collector's item. Oh, is it ghostwritten? I, I presume. No, I think I or the publisher, the publisher. Yes, uh-huh. yes. Um, yeah. So with Patrick Brown out of the way, that cleared the field for Doug Ford after a competitive leadership race with a couple question marks hanging over some of the aspects of it. And in fact, it's now emerged that perhaps some of those question marks ran deeper than anybody had ever thought. Uh, there is a... Not about Doug Ford's... Yes. Yeah. The, the you way, you the were way... giving me a puzzle, yeah, puzzle look. No, it's yes. just the sort of what um, Vic Fidelli, the interim leader, called the, the rot in the PC party went quite deep, as it turned out. Boy, did it... Did it... Ever. Yes. So a couple days ago, the PC candidate for Brampton East resigned after it emerged that he had been in some way associated with um, the theft of customer data from the 407, which is a alleged theft theft of the customer data from the 407, which is a privately run highway. Um, So the PCs appear to have used this data allegedly to sort of uh, create lists of people that whose identities they stole to vote in nomination races. So it's perhaps worth clarifying that it's not the PCs as an institution, but rather perhaps yes. some rogue background uh, backroom staffers. Well, rogue backroom agents who were closely tied to the leader. At the, at the time being Patrick Brown. Yes. That, Which I think is an important distinction. That is fair. I yes. mean, I, I hold no candle for yes. this man. He seems to have been a sort of fixer in these kinds of things where the, the party, or the leader decided, I don't want this person winning. I want this person to win. 
and they would then cheat in nomination races. I think, is that a fair characterization? So, the only thing to back up that characterization so far is one email, I think that's been reported on, uh, of Patrick Brown saying... Uh, we can't disqualify him, but I want this guy to get, win. Get me the result I want. Yes. I think is, yeah. How, how it was phrased. Um, so that's perhaps the only instance that sort of ties in the highest levels of the party. But what I think sort of the common narrative of what happened here is you had an individual who was accepting payments of $20,000 roughly um, from candidates in order to get his services and help in winning nominations. Yes. And um, it now appears that perhaps that help involved the registration of false members and the falsification of documents. Yeah. Perhaps with the data stolen from the 407 commission. Yeah. The so, 407. and what people described, uh, eyewitnesses, the Globe had a story that was sort of an investigative piece about sort of these nominations was that a busload of people would arrive, they would be taken by a sort of handler to the like special registration problems desk where which were usually staffed by members of mr brown's staff um and then would basically be like sped through and given a vote and then there were also allegations of ballot box stuffing where people would find like packets of ballots like in the box which like as the person said it's not believable to me that these fell in here like that and the globe piece talks about going through some of the data that they were handed and talking about irregularities and registrations or you know the, or the classic, identical identical bank statements with just the names changed the like, classic 19 people to a house sort of thing yeah um yeah, what I, what I think is interesting to note and sort of, I guess, the value add here would be that, well, the media is discussing, what's the number, 19 or 29? 29. 29 candidates. Which is a lot. 29 candidates is a lot. Two things I would caution in using that number. Um, that is not necessarily going to represent 29 current no, yes, PC candidates. I, I think a lot of people are yeah. thinking that. Some of them will have lost, and then the party did make moves to void um, a Ottawa, few, West Nepean, and few, Carleton, I believe. I think there's a couple more than that that were voided for reg- irregularities in voting and stuff like that. Either under Patrick Brown, I think there might have been some under him, but certainly under Vic Fidelli. Yeah. Um, so some of these people may have lost, some may have had it voided. It is unlikely, in my opinion, uh, that it will impact you know 29 sitting candidates. No, it'll probably impact a few. For yeah, I, I I think that is likely. It's yeah. I mean, it started with the one who resigned from the four hundred seven commission. Yeah, because he seems to have been directly allegedly related to this data theft, yes. which is itself a, like hundred percent a crime. Like it's which which yeah, I think we will take a slight detour, but I think we want to talk more about nominations and how they're regulated or not, as the case may be. Uh, so we'll make a slight detour to the other big story of this election so far which is the ndp uh really surging as the the alternative to the pcs and the liberals languishing pretty deep in third at this point yeah i mean depending on who you are um i I don't think the liberals being in third place this election was remark is remarkable i i think like i don't think anyone is surprised is what i mean i don't think anyone is surprised in the sense that liberals are so unpopular but i think people are surprised at how well the ndp has been able to capitulate or 
um, capitalize, not capitulate on it. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think we'll have to wait to see if the NDP can actually fully yeah. crush the Liberal Party down to you know two, three seats. As... Yes, I think that's probably unlikely. I think the Liberal vote is going to be very efficient in some parts of the province where they'll be able to hold on in some urban cores. Um, Ottawa is going to be a real battleground, actually. I, th- I think if the Liberals still get roughly twenty five percent of the vote, which is roughly where they're hovering now, yeah. The NDP has failed failed here. They they really need the Liberal vote to collapse, and why should it did? Yeah, no, I mean, like, I think they're going to have a hard time getting them below 20, which other polls have them at. Uh, but it really depends how that vote's distributed. And how well, also, the NDP can break through in the 905, I think, is, like, the big question mark. Because that's the region where they're running the furthest behind. And historically, they've had very little success. Sure. Um, so if they can if they can start making breaking through in a big way there, uh, they can really... We'll see what happens. Um, you know what a great policy would be? What's that? Can I offer this to NDP policy writers? Go ahead. Abolish the beer store. I would personally support such a thing. And the LCBO. I'm not sure I would go that far. <laughs> 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 Gotta take them both I, down. Pri- I think, privatize it. I think that de- merits a more fulsome discussion another time. But yes, the beer store is an atrocity and should be abolished. I, I was delighted to see that the PCs have offered convenience store sales of i that is not enough of a reason for me to vote pc obviously but i am happy to see it there there needs to be one additional caveat because liberals are like oh beer is available in grocery stores but apparently they can't sell beer greater than 7.1 percent which gets rid of like all the really good craft beer that is true also they have to sell it during lcbo hours which is super annoying Uh, yeah like what's the point of having it at the grocery store if you just have to go to the same time you go to the lcbo anyway i've seen multiple people lose their mind about having to wait five minutes with their beer at the counter so that it could you know coincide with the law yeah oh no we can't sell that you're gonna have to wait five minutes yeah i mean understandable but also like not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things but it's like the stupid patio rules here where people have to step outside the velvet rope in order to smoke, even though they're still within yes. you know, a foot of where they're previously This is standing. like non-smoking sections in restaurants. The smoke doesn't care. Um, anything else to say about uh, the NDP? I think it's it's certainly interesting. Andrea Horvath's been leader for a long time with sort of limited success. She had a pretty good 2014 election, but far below kind of what the expectations were, especially considering that she brought down the government. And was able to get some some decent by-election victories uh, between the 2011 and 2014 elections. But since then has been kind of adrift, and it seems like she's been able to capitalize on this pretty well. They've come out with a pretty impressive platform compared to the last time. And One, well, one question. Who yes. is the heir apparent, now that Jagmeet Singh is out, to... To Andrea? Horvath that is in a Ontario. Great question, honestly, because I don't think there really is one. Um we will see what happens with this election. I think at this point, it's likely she keeps her job if if things keep going the direction they're going. Certainly, um, um, but the, had they not gone this way, um, then I think a lot of people would have had knives out for her because she yes. had been leading the party for so long with very little to show for with it. With very little to show for it, so yeah. I, I mean, obviously, this election is turning to be quite uh, quite a win for the NDP. Whether they form official opposition. I think that's uh, minority minority point. government or yeah. one of the other options on the table right now. Yeah. Um, but I think it would have been interesting to sort of play the counterfactual here to say that if they did horribly, like, where does the NDP go? 
If, if the NDP were in third place right now. Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty brutal. If they, if they weren't able... And I was saying this for the months leading up to this election, was if the NDP can't, like, make gains this year, when can they? Right? With, like, the sort of, like, fuck ogre Doug Ford at the head of the PCs. And... <laughs> and um, Kathleen Wynne, the enormously unpopular deficit gremlin... Um, just to sort of, so we have two fantasy counterparts here. But wait, um, Christy Blatchford says she's a nice person. Yeah, I'm sure she is, but like she's been a competent premier, so I don't really care. But she's leading the Ontario economy to stellar growth. It's really weird how Christy Blatchford, of all people, is like suddenly. I guess they hate the NDP that much. Who knows? Um, at any rate, yeah. So I think if they weren't able to to make gains this year, it would have like very much been curtains for Andrea, and certainly would have led to a lot of soul searching in the party. NDPers are like cockroaches and that they will never quit and are impossible to eradicate completely. But, um, you know, it's it would have certainly been a real, real blow if they hadn't been able to sort of displace the liberals this time. Uh, luckily, they've been able to do that. So, well, we'll see, obviously. But um, signs are looking good in that direction. But, yeah, in terms of who would have been on the sort of bench there as a possible replacement no one really jumps to my mind frankly um they've had a they have a competent caucus but no one who really jumps out to me as a natural leader and heir jagmeet was that person obviously but he is no longer there equally obviously um so i don't know i don't know i think I, i i don't know the ontario caucus that well um so that that's part of it but no one to me really jumps out but luckily, that will hopefully be a moot point. <laughs> yes. Okay. And they'll have time to develop a deeper bench. So I am ready to leave the Ontario election there. And okay. I won't even be in the country when it happens. So that is true. Good riddance. You're leaving like what, like two days before? Two days before. Yeah. Good, good for you. Good riddance. Are you going to vote? Ooh. <laughs> we'll see. I've, I've got a lot of competing priorities for my time. That is the, fair. Uh, in the next two weeks. That is fair. Took me five minutes the other day. I've got a lot of competing priorities in the next... Like playing Fortnite for like 11 hours. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of priorities, okay. Laura. A lot of priorities okay. to balance. We'll see. I see. Uh, you wanted to talk, or I guess we both wanted to talk, actually, uh, a more fulsome discussion about party nominations. I mean, yes. We, we sort of bridged off it um, with the talk. I said we would circle back. Well, we're here. Here's us circling back. We're here. Um... Yes, I mean, party nominations, federally, provincially, since forever, have always been the source of much controversy. Yes. Um, Because to date, they've always been at the discretion of parties, and parties basically make the rules new or edit the rules every four years or every how often they need to nominate people. And sometimes the rules, I, th- I think the liberals, if I'm not mistaken, um, don't don't quote me on this, had rules this time around as to who could challenge a sitting candidate based on how much money they had in the bank and things along those lines. Yeah. Uh, basically, as a metric of how well your can- that candidate is doing. I know that repo- uh, reform MPs back in the day, there's certainly some embittered ones um, about being challenged in their nomination when they're working in Ottawa across, you know, across the country and not having much time to do the organizing and campaigning in their riding. And so to a certain extent, it can be easy to beat a sitting MP in a nomination if they're 
not beloved among the uh, among the locals. Yes. Um, so there, there's certainly a lot of different politics that come into play with this. And what we're seeing in the PC race today is how much of that there is and how ineffective parties are at keeping these things clean, whether yeah. it's with sort of putting the thumb on the scale or the downright corruption that is being reported today about the PC party that is uh, ballot stuffing like. Uh, like the type of thing you would see in Soviet Russia or modern example let me correct myself yeah. present day Russia where the balloon goes in front of the cameras and the ballot boxes yeah. are switched out sort of thing yeah. like it's absolutely insane and I think it does beg the question as to whether or not some sort of um, electoral commission should maybe not set the rules, um, although that's certainly on the spectrum of policy options, uh, but oversee, audit, take your pick, something along those lines, some sort of third-party audit process yeah. to be triggered because right now having parties do it as... Uh, from, from like, top to bottom, yeah, is, is clearly not working very well in the sense that you, there are so many, so many avenues where, you know, there can be undue influence or just outright cheating. And the thing is... This is really ultimately the problem, is that if parties wanted to investigate and punish these things, they probably could. Uh, they don't have the investigative resources of an electoral agency, but they have resources. But fundamentally, it's an issue where these things make parties look bad. Uh, so parties, as sort of judge, jury, and executioner, have the incentive of bitter, drawn-out public fights and investigations that you don't really know where they're going to go. Um, or sweeping it under the rug and not making a big deal out of it. Uh, so I think it's ultimately the interest for the party is not necessarily to see justice done or a proper process observed. It's to keep political damage to the party over these kinds of issues to a minimum. Uh, and we had talked about this sort of in the context of the Ontario PC leadership race where there had been some concerns over like the vote counting and stuff. And it's ultimately what you can't have is uncertainty. Uh, what you want is a leader declared as soon as possible and with as few sort of bumps and bruises as possible. I, th I think basically every election I can think of, the conservative, the NDP, take your pick, um, these being the leadership, as well as nomination races, liberal, conservative, NDP nomination races, seem to perpetually have questions around them as to whether or not they're yeah. conducting a fair and well, transparent and, and, manner. And like I said, ultimately I think it comes down to the parties do not want to really police this properly themselves because that would be embarrassing for them. So I think let's let's take away that problem and either allow Elections Ontario slash Elections Canada slash Elections whatever to investigate in cases where they an investigation is requested or simply have them in the room at all times, have them approving nomination processes. I think if you wanted to really do it like the most maximally regulated, you would have sort of like Elections Ontario or Canada or whatever gives you a sort of suite of dates that you can pick for your nomination meeting where they will be like able to assist you and then you sort of do like almost more like a primary system um, where it just all gets decided on the same day for the different parties uh, would be certainly kind of interesting to watch um, instead of this sort of ad hoc thing where I mean the date itself can always be contentious because people can move it further or back to advantage or disadvantage candidates they do or don't like. And the green lighting of the candidate so yeah. let, let's talk about green lighting of the candidates there's one of the sticky issues where 
a party fundamentally is not a public institution uh, as it's presently structured. And so government regulation of whether how the green light process works, I don't think makes any sense. Um, people will push back and say because of the amount of public money that parties receive, they are quasi-public institutions. And I the, think they are. They serve and, a public function. And, and the way they work in the system. But having parties regulated by um, sort of bureaucrats or public servants or third parties uh, is something I'm very hesitant to permit. Very, very hesitant. Yeah. Um, I think that's totally reasonable. But on the spectrum of policy options available, I think having oversight, um, having Elections Canada or whoever it is, provide oversight of the process, simply that, simply scrutineers, people, like International Election Observer sort of style thing, where they they write notes and they write a report about the fairness of it, and that sort of can act as an impetus for further investigation or what have you. Yeah. I think that is a minimally invasive and would be potentially a very, very good addition to the present process. I think that's, yeah, as you say, minimally invasive. I think that's a good place to start. And I think depending on how that process works out, you may want to have more stringent forms of regulation. I basically don't really see a reason why nominations should be any less regulated than general elections because they ultimately serve the same purpose. Um, And currently they are really rife with abuse and with a lot of, of fraud and, and just outright unfairness. So, yeah, I think that's a reasonable proposal to start with. I personally don't see a, a real well-articulated reason why they shouldn't just be subject to the Elections Act, kind of in the same way that elections are. Um, but, you know, I, I think you, your point about political parties being quasi-private, quasi-public is fair. So I would I would be on board with the Etienne uh, foreign monitor's uh, approach to begin with and see where that goes uh, no I think it's it's really like a, a part of the system that is it turns a lot of people off politics too which I think is the most tragic thing it's people who want to get involved and end up getting really really sharp elbowed in the process um, or people are very sharp elbowed with them yeah politics is at its most vicious yeah. in nominations in local ridings to the point where MPs, sitting MPs, and, like, look at Dimitri Sudas and Eve Adams. Yeah. Like, you have high members of, well, sitting MPs, and at that point, the executive director of the party, if I'm not mistaken, getting, like, into the worst sorts of bun fights over nomination. Yeah. That ruined both of their careers, effectively. Yeah. Um, like, absolutely ridiculous. Something... Something should be done. Yeah, to sort of sort these things out. Yeah, and I think that I think like for the PCs, this is probably tip of the iceberg too. Like it's yeah, and I don't I don't want to single out the PCs too much. Like yeah, I think I think I don't suspect to... the iceberg can get much larger than twenty nine people using fraudulent potentially allegedly using <laughs> fraudulently obtained data to rig nominations using. Yeah, forged that, identity. I, I think that, that seems would be, like you're looking at. I don't, I don't know what you think the rest the rest of the iceberg looks like. I guess more candidates, uh, or just you know, this is one organized fraud set basically. But like you know, how many more are we looking at? Anyway, I, I don't. I don't know that I, there's necessarily more, but I think certainly the book should be thrown at all those. Yes. Involved yes. In, in this current one, I also want to just not to single out the the PCs too much. I mean, the PCs seem to have been the most lax and kind of most brutal with this. But, like, certainly all parties, to a greater or lesser degree, have, you know, thumbs on the scale, shenanigans with the, the vote dates, and, like, all this kind of stuff. So it's it's not to 
the party will can and will play favorites at every level and in every party so it's uh it's not a unique problem to uh to the pcs um you want to talk briefly about the c49 ping pong legislative ping pong sorry what's that the transportation uh act no no wrong no transportation modernization act okay there you go no i was i was just teasing to test your knowledge of transportation modernization to test your knowledge um so the c c49 i think i mentioned it on here close one (laughs) yeah (laughs) old habits i think i mentioned on here before yeah we have talked about it a little bit um it is not a legislation uh, or a piece of legislation that i have looked at very much um it was a passenger's bill of rights kind of thing it is in a, there among other things uh inter switching has to do with grain the grain farmers are perhaps the most uh vocal stakeholder stakeholder group yes. in getting this piece of legislation passed is there's somewhat of a grain crisis um sort of ongoing in grain the prairies um but c49 is most interesting to note in this context uh not for the legislation itself, but for the process. Um, C-49 was passed by the House. It went to the Senate. Senate studied it, uh, recommended, I think about 20, um, 20 amendments, went to senators, baited third reading vote, uh, passed a bunch of them, went back to the House. The House only accepted a few of them, went back to the Senate, and the Senate has returned it to the House with two amendments that they're basically insisting on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that the Senate is now returning to this this to the House a second time uh, represents the first time in is it twelve years? Since oh yeah, two thousand six. So yeah, twelve yeah. years since the Federal Accountability Act, um, when the then liberal dominated Senate returned the legislation this many times twice to the House. Um, at the time, I think the liberal-dominated Senate, with the help of some of the conservative members, managed to get through something like 90 of 150 amendments or something like that. It was it was quite a quite a number of amendments. Um, the Federal Accountability Act was a huge, huge, huge piece of omnibus legislation overhauling um, everything nice. from ATIP to lobbying to sort of general ethics. Yeah, I think it amended significantly amended something like 45 statutes. And touched on dozens and yeah. dozens others. Probably one of the best bills the Harper government ever passed. I say that unironically. That I, I think it was a good piece of legislation. I think there were some serious flaws in the legislation. I know what you're thinking about, and that's a minor flaw. Uh, some, it's it's not very serious minor. for it's, you. It's not. No, it, it is more of substance than you would concede. Um, what, what are you talking about, it? Yeah. What, what, what are you talking we, about? We obviously spend so much time together that we don't even need to like, actually say what we're talking about, but. Um, so I think a lot of the accountability rules uh, around lobbying were a little heavy-handed. Um, let me run through perhaps the best example of this being the five-year ban that I'm currently Gosh, subject exactly to. exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Imagine that. It's pretty minor, all things considered. It's not, though. It's not, and I'll tell you why. Okay, go ahead. So, quick background on the ban that we're discussing. The ban is a five-year ban uh, for, I mean, there's various parameters around it, but roughly is for people who serve as designated public office holders to then lobby government 
is, is the core of it. There's the one-year cooling off period that's more strict, but that's sort of the core of it. And I am subject to the five-year ban uh, at present for my year and a half in a minister's office. Um, the problem with the ban is it acts as a huge disincentive for people to work in key positions in government. Perhaps not when we have majority governments, but when we have minority governments. Yeah, because you don't know when you're going to be out of a job. Yeah, You so, could be there six weeks and face a five-year ban. So here's... The, the best example would be that in, if, in 2019, if Andrew Scheer were to win a middling minority government, okay, who is going to work and staff his office knowing that perhaps you're going to be there for... Maybe six months, yeah, maybe a year and a half. Minority Who governments knows? rarely last more than 18 So they, So you have a year and a half. Yeah. Who wants to get a five-year ban? Are you going to look at staffers who are currently, like, to use myself as an example, I don't know if I would go back and work in a, government, in a minority government that was reasonably unstable, right? Yeah. If there were the prospects of renewing my ban for, you know, 12 months, 18 months of employment. Yes. I, I don't know that that is so, a good cost calculation. Sure. So it pushes out perhaps, Not I'm not going to be generous here and refer to myself, but it pushes a lot of people away from very critical roles in government and sure. acts as a huge disincentive. What would you like to say? I would just say that that's unfortunate for people who want to work in lobbying, but there are other things you can do with your time. Um, I would agree with you that the five-year ban, regardless basically of your role or of how long you were there, is a little bit of a blunt instrument, and I think it probably could and should be refined to be a little more sensitive to, is there actually going to be a conflict? I think, you know, in, in your case, when you were doing issues and communications, you're not really doing a lot of stakeholder meetings, you're not really deciding on a lot of policy I think that probably merits more wiggle room than someone who was immersed in, you know, meeting with different stakeholders, writing policy, like really forging sure. connections with these groups. I think that's totally reasonable to distinguish between these cases. And I think the lobbying commissioner sh does have the authority to um, pre like release people from their five-year bans ahead, like ahead of schedule if if they apply. Sort uh, but of. I, I agree that it's a system that probably should be refined a little bit to be a bit more sensitive to the realities of having people come in and participate in government. So I was, I was going through this the other day and looking at the exemptions that the lobbying commissioner has granted um, sort of in the past few years. And the lobbying commissioner only has... Wait, I'm trying to remember. Is the lobbying commissioner the conflict? I think it's... Sorry, I think it's held at the conflict of interest commission, not the lobbying commissioner. Um, I, I misspoke there. Um, going through... And the, the reasons she, he or she has for providing exemptions to the ban are actually, you know, prescribed. And they're fairly specific. There's one, if I'm not mistaken, for transition teams, uh, being on the transition team. Mm -hmm. Fairly limited role. Sure. Um, there is one for not having worked in that capacity for a significant amount of time. Significant yeah. is not defined. Of course. Uh, <laughs> like every critical section in like <sighs> lobbying conflict of interest rules, it's um, poorly defined. And then there's one for administrative duties, and there's one for in a student capacity. And I okay. think that is it. Um, one of the things that's coming up is the five-year statutory review of some of these things. And I think a lot of the GR industry in Ottawa will be watching that very closely to see sort of what the new commissioner, what sort of stance the new commissioner takes in regards to 
what will outwardly appear to the public as weakening yes. conflict of interest rules. This yeah. this is what makes well, this, amending this, is, this, this is overbearing uh, legislation so politically yes. sensitive is that it will appear to be weakening of lobbying of lobbying rules and the uh, the liberal government has been you know fiercely criticized on their closeness yes. to lobbyists in the past yeah and w- with fairness right i think they've had a lot of very close relationships and i think you know kind of troubling relationships with with a lot of groups basically sending staffers to to them and then obviously the other way around as well uh, which is preempted now by the the, the rules but I think I think a common sense look of like how can we make this work a little better and like I think put more enforcement where it's needed and less where like you know outgoing junior comm staffers who were there eighteen months in Chan's case like maybe don't need the hammer thrown at them where like I think for instance the uh, chief public affairs person at Google going in to be a chief of staff for the heritage ministry is something that should be looked at more closely but currently under the scope of the law isn't looked at at all. I think we need sort of like an in-outdoor look at this, and I think perhaps the outdoor maybe needs some relaxation in some parts, but like, yeah, so, there's so what, trade-offs. What here. you're referencing there is that presently our conflict of interest regime is currently structured in sort of a... Yes, people leaving a the public one-dimensional yeah. for leaving the public service, not for entering. So you can be the CEO of Google and then go work for the Department of Google in the government of Canada, <laughs> yes. and presently there would be no issues with that. Yes. Uh, aside from sort of your PR issues, yeah, and the yeah the the opposition screaming their heads off, o- optics, it, but, purely yeah. optics. Yeah. But like, uh, I, I think that should be looked at more closely, and yeah, perhaps you know outgoing junior communication staffers a little where a could, little more sensitive. You could be head of the Google department, and you could not go work for Google. Indeed. Well, you could. You could just not work for Google one year experience. from your last yeah. meeting where you had. Significant, uh, direct and significant direct and significant dealings. You'd have to wait yes. over a year, and then the position you worked with them would have to be internal and not external facing. Yes, with any sort of lobbying component. So, yes. I mean, Etienne, to be fair here, also, like you, you are forbidden from lobbying. You do not lobby, but you do work in GR. Yes. What's What's your point? I mean, it's just like it hasn't like prevented you from like working in like a field you're interested in, and like yeah, I I would. I would caution some. I would. Okay. I would put a shit ton of caveats on that if I were <laughs> to go enough. into uh, into length on this yes. topic. I know you've had the the one thing where like you're not allowed to work on like people's campaigns except for like you can't like put up signs. You can't call people, but you can like manage. So no, what you're referring to, if I'm not mistaken, is grassroots lobbying provisions. Yes. Yes. Um, this is grassroots campaigning. It's been defined by the commissioner in two some odd memos, um, not in statute, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but she's then she still she um, still she different she, but yes, lobbying for Nancy Belcher is the new uh, one. Yeah. Karen Shepard and then Nancy. Belcher. I'm trying to think if it's the lobbying commissioner that put out these memos. It would be, I think. So yeah, sorry, conflict of interest is you know, yeah, um, yes. So put out these memos that discussed what sort of grassroots activity someone under the ban could be uh, sort of forbidden from doing. And it was interesting because they talk more about the putting up the sign than the coordinating strategy. Yeah. So if you're under the ban and you're participating in what's basically defined as grassroots lobbying, you can do the strategic role of... Yeah. Coordinating the campaign, approving the graphics, X, Y, Z, but actually posting the graphics constitutes a... Verboten. 
verboten activity. Indeed. Or putting up the sign, or, you know... Making phone calls. Sticking yeah. the billboard. So, yeah. it, it I, I just always found that to be it an interesting dynamic. It is very weird. Where the more significant coordinating role is permitted, <laughs> and the less significant sort of human being, like, basic labor role is verboten. Yeah, it is a bit weird. So... I think that'll probably do it for us today. Is that uh, it? There's nothing nothing else on our to-do list? Not really. We got through all of it. And then some, actually. Oh, jeez. So, yeah. That'll, that'll do it for us today. Thanks, as always, for listening. I think we reviewed our beer before today. I think we've done it. Probably. The yeah. Canada Goes from Canada Main goes City. Canada Goes City. It's still okay. Um, one, one thing I would note for those following the legislative calendar, let's just start, sort of do a look ahead here. Um, March 22nd? Is that the first day the house? I think that's the first day the house is back. So th- this week the house was on break. May twenty second. Um, what did I say? May, you said March. March. Damn yes. it. Uh, May twenty second or Tuesday of next week the house comes back for basically the final push. Yep. Um, into mid late June. Yeah. The government is looking to pass a couple key pieces of legislation. C forty nine transportation modernization act. C forty five are basically at the top of that pile. Um, well, C45 has already passed the Commons, though, so that won't be a... No, I mean, yeah. passed into Royal Assent. Yeah. Um, any piece of legislation that's presently in the House of Commons is going nowhere until um, September. Um, basically, it's just drawing things out to get them to the Senate and the Senate to get through as much of the legislation yeah. as they can. It, that's it's on a roster. very weird time of the year in the sense that it's very busy, but at the same time, everyone is, like, is, is already, like counting down the hours and kind of has a foot out the door to like barbecue circuit and yeah. other things and it's like it's very odd it's it's a bizarre time to be on the hill it's kind of the silly season so and if your mp is having an enbridge sponsored barbecue don't know that that is also for foden <laughs> as, as per the recent memorandum issued by mario Tiel. indeed so that'll do it for us today thanks as always for listening and we'll try and get episode the 50th episode in uh before june perfect goodbye everyone <laughs>